The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Oh, we're getting good at that. And folks, you're talking to two people who did not go into a lock-up <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> Budget lock-up. Um, uh, we're not doing that anymore. Well, no. I'm not anyway. I don't know about James. No, I was not in there either. Very interested at 7.30 to see the uh, all the news drop, though. Yes, that's right. Such as it was. Interesting budget, right? It's it's not not devoid of news, but it's um, got a different tone to what we've seen recently. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a, a bit of a non-event, really, and they were just just in, in implemented their promises as we suspected they would do. Yep. Updated the economic outlook. Yep. Um, downgraded it. Really. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Downgraded the outlook. Uh, and interestingly, reduced the forecast for productivity growth from 1.5 to 1.2 percent, which has a quite a big impact on uh, revenue. Yeah. Um, but 1.5 percent was unrealistic. So, yeah, productivity growth 1.2 percent, which makes a big uh, makes a big imp- has a big impact on the budget, and they um, uh, and also downgraded obviously the growth forecasts for next year. Um, and uh, the budget stays in structural deficit. So no um, real budget repair. No, but the promise of it, which is interesting. I mean, I think that's the interesting bit. Like often you see a bit like when the new CEO comes in and, you know, blows up his predecessor's strategy and writes all for all this money so his figures will look good in the coming year. You often see the federal treasurer, the new a new federal treasurer f- first budget contain lots of bad news, but... Chalmers seems to be going a different way. He's sort of prepping everybody for this, in quotation marks, conversation about higher taxes and lower spending, which he's sort of arguing is going to be needed to fix the budget over time. Now, there's not a lot of that in this budget, none really. Certainly no higher taxes, um, well, a few little tax tweaks, um, but not a lot of lower spending. So from that, you presume that that's coming, right? that he's going to go into next election, perhaps, looking for a mandate to lift taxes and cut spending, which would be something. I don't think they'll cut spending. No? No. Uh, well, they might They might cut spending in areas other than the NDIS, um, you know, aged care, yep. health care, all that. You know, they might, they might find some money somewhere else, but well, I mean, overall, I don't think spending will be cut. Yeah. Um, and I do think they absolutely have to put up taxes. No question about it. Well, I mean, yeah, you, you just named those things. So NDIS, $160 billion, I think, over the next four years. Or Rises so. to $102 billion a year yeah. in cost, and it's it's compounding at 13.8% per annum, right? It's so, an extraordinary amount of money, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. But we love the NDIS, don't we? Well, we, th- you know, we're not going to get rid of it. We're, no, uh, no fact, we, we want to, just want it to be run at a world-class, amazing level so it works for the people who need the money. And there's exactly. no none of this 
wastage. But they underestimated the number of people who need the money. Yeah, right? absolutely. So that's that's what they did, absolutely. and so now we're getting to we're getting to an NDIS that's re- that's realistic. Yep. Aged care costs are co- compounding. Sure. Defence is the other big one, and health. So you're not going to take anything out of those budgets, are you? No. So where's the where the savings come from? <laughs> that's right. So the, the the savings aren't really there. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, so they're going to have to put up taxes. So the the arbitrary limit on taxes of twenty three percent of GDP, twenty three point nine percent of GDP, which was um, uh, invented by the coalition, because that happened to be the proportion that John Howard ended with. Right. Okay. And they went, oh, well, that'll do. That's it. Yep. That's the that's that's your limit right there. <laughs> and um, uh, but anyway, this budget forecasts that uh, within ten in ten years time. Tax to GDP ratio will be twenty four point one percent. Right. So, it, uh, according to this budget, it does go above the twenty three point nine percent, but only just. Yeah. And uh, I'm saying, you know, and I think a few people are saying it's going to have to go a fair bit more than that. Yeah. In order to pay for the things. I mean, alternatively, you can just run deficits forever. Yes. And fund the gap with bonds. Yep. Issuing bonds. But the interest costs are starting to bite in this budget. True. So exactly. As as interest rates goes up, the interest costs are starting to really make a discernible difference, aren't they? They are. So uh, so, uh, if if you're predicting tax increases, does that mean the idea of the stage three tax cuts is going to be slowly just eliminated over the next few years? I'd say so. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you're going to increase taxes, no point. Cutting taxes. Cutting them and <laughs> increasing them, yeah. I mean, I guess you could do, uh, you know, a broader suite of tax reform, but... Well, that's what it has to be. I mean, that, that, if they're going to do it, oh, they okay. need to... They, <laughs> they need to try to have the conversation. Oh. Don't, don't we have to have the conversation? Uh, don't, aren't we it, looking forward to the conversation? Well, I, it would be good to have the conversation, and that is something... There is a lot less shrillness about the national conversation at the moment, which is good. Hmm. But I think getting to the point of sort of meaningful, holistic tax reform, that would take an entirely different conversation. I mean, there's a few things are not, not even mentioned in that that list of NDIS, aged care, healthcare, yeah. defence, interest. They're the five things that Chalmers, Chalmers keeps talking about. Yeah. But uh, not mentioned is ch- uh, climate change and housing. Yeah, well, right? uh, yeah. And so uh, climate change, uh, you know, they're they're spending money on um, uh, transitioning the network towards renewables. Fair enough. Yep. But I reckon there's going to be a huge amount of money to be spent on uh, dealing with the impact of climate change. Well, the, the budget does hint at that in a few spots. You know, there's the, the I think they quantified the cost of the floods at seven billion. Yeah. And going forward. The costs in healthcare, for example, when there's disasters, is going to skyrocket. Yeah. So you're right. You have to think about projecting these things and preparing for them. Yeah. So they've got they've put aside two hundred million dollars annually on disaster prevention. Yes. But I just don't think that's going to be anywhere near enough. No. Uh, and they're also, you know, building ten thousand affordable homes um, and setting up a fund of ten billion dollars, sort of a, a housing future fund. Yes. Which also is not enough. Um, yeah. Given the shortage of housing in Australia and the need for more people. Yeah. I think the good thing about that is it does seem to involve the states and the feds working together to free up land supply and 
tackle social housing particularly. So, yeah, it's not enough, but it, it, it's a step in the right direction. It's a bit of a co-op, cooperative, collaborative approach. So, you know, thumbs up to that. Yeah, but everywhere you everywhere you look in this budget and, um, and in general at government, there's kind of this huge amount of pressure on spending. Yeah. Like there's things, so much... But, I mean, required. Yes, to, to, to revert to the conversation, what are we, what are we going to give up here? <laughs> you know, you, all the things you've mentioned are all worthy things that need more money. So, so what's going to give? Um, yeah, well, um, uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure they're going to, we are going to, as a society, accept endless deficits, right? I mean, I think... Hmm. You know, the whole notion of budgeting has been that <laughs> yes. you have a balanced budget over the course of the cycle. That's what they keep talking about. Yep. Well, they used to anyway. Yep. Haven't mentioned that phrase for a while. Mm. Mm. So, a balance over the course over the course of the cycle is the is the is the aspiration. It's never been achieved. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there have been periods of surpluses. Yeah, obviously, brief ones, <clears throat> brief ones in the eighties and then two um, thousands. Uh, but but really, they've been brief. Yeah. Insufficient. Yep. Um, and, you know, um, so look, uh, are we just going to say, okay, that's fine, we're just going to keep running the yeah. deficits and yep. that's fine. Well, um, and this is the fascinating thing, you know, we could take the American approach and just go, well, just run it up, run up the tab and who cares, Would you, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. But but this is the problem in a rising rate environment that we've got now Um your interest bills start to become a real problem. Now, ours is any, not anywhere near the US's, but the interest bills are big and getting bigger. And they will bite. Well, yes, uh, up to a point. I mean, uh, the, the interest represents a transfer of money from the government into the pockets of uh, private individuals, mm. mainly, mainly super funds, the people who own the bonds. Um, and so... It's not as if the money's kind of the, the interest. The money on interest is disappearing into nowhere. It's actually going into people's pockets. That money, yeah, yeah. and it's being funded with the more the issuing of more bonds. Yes, um, but you know, yeah, but you've got that. Those private individuals need to have confidence that you'll actually be sensible about it. As we've seen in Britain, sometimes the private individuals in the bond market can lose confidence in the government, and your interest costs go up even higher. Yeah. So it's a, there's, there's a balance to be struck, you're right. So since I did a column last week for New Daily and uh, I counted up the number of deficits since 1970-71. Yep. It's 36 deficits totaling $795 billion Yep. And 17 surpluses. Okay. Totaling $176 billion. So... Hmm. That's that's maybe not as bad as I thought it might have been. No, well, it's not always <laughs> deficits, but it's by you know, like it's thirty six deficits versus seventeen surpluses. Yeah, yeah. And the and the numbers are seven hundred ninety five billion dollars of deficits and one hundred seventy six billion of surpluses, right? Mm. Um, I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, to your point about the public sort of not accepting deficits. Maybe we're better at accepting deficits than of we think we are. Of course we are. are. <laughs> That's what that tells you. <laughs> so we're maybe it's not such a big... I mean, I think the, the idea of... I don't know. I think Chalmers, I sort of admire the way he's said, right, we need to, we're going to need to work this out over time, steadily and slowly, together. You know, we need to... We need to I know this conversation idea is stupid, but we, we need to figure out how we're going to approach this 
getting the budget back into close to surplus or, or close to balanced. So I, I think that's a really sort of mature approach. Let's let's sort of work it out. What don't we like? What do we like? Let let a let a party actually go to an election and say we want a mandate for this. In that column, I was um, I was quoting Jim Chalmers' book. He published. He wrote in in two thousand and thirteen mm. called Glory Days D A Z E. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and. Um, and that was after the Labor Party lost the election. Right. So he'd been he'd been Wayne Swan's chief of staff. Yeah. So Wayne Swan was treasurer. Chalmers was his chief of staff. They worked on this 2010 budget. Um, well, they worked on all their budgets. Chalmers with Swan, but in 2010 they had surpluses uh, for um, uh, 2021 and 22. Yeah. And mm-hmm. going forward, so they they kind of. They, uh, no, no the, a couple of years after that, so not um, 2020, 2013, 14, they had surpluses, right? Yep. And um, Chalmers in his book was saying how fantastic that was and he was enthusiastic about getting the budget back into surplus. Mm. Um, but within two years, of course, the surpluses just disappeared. Yeah. And it wasn't as if there was a crisis then either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a crisis in Europe, 2012. Yes. Greek went, Greece went broke. Yep. And um, there was a bit of a crisis in the US, not a big one, but the, the Fed, Federal Reserve was doing quantitative easing like crazy, trying to boost the economy. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, the, certainly nevertheless... We, certainly our growth wasn't... Our growth record wasn't broken, right? So anyway, the, po- the point is that in his book, Jim Chalmers was, was basically conventional about the need to get back to surplus okay, and yep. talking about the need to get back to surplus. Yeah. But there's no talk about that now. I mean... Oh, yeah, got, not, not so explicitly. There's no, there's no, there's no budget repair was talked about last year. Yeah, night. but, the, you know, they have... These days the Treasury has 10-year forecasts, yeah. right? They've got the forward estimates of four years. Yes. And then there's this sort of long-term 10-year forecast and there's no surpluses for 10 years. Yeah. And, in fact... The structural deficit in 10 years' time is the same as it is now, yeah. according to the Treasury forecast. It dips and then it goes up, right? Yeah, two, well, it's 2% of GDP. Yeah. So it, it dips a bit next year, but it's basically they're forecasting a structural deficit of 2% of GDP in, te- in 10 years, mm. right? So it's not as if it's even close to zero yeah. Yeah, that's in not 10 a lot years' of time. So uh, There'll be no budget for ten, no surplus for ten years after that. Probably it's not going to go back into surplus, you know, in um, in the eleventh year. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so do we just not worry? Do you think? Or well, this is the point. I mean, <laughs> Japan hasn't had a surplus on this budget for te- for thirty years, right? Yeah. Ever since the crash of eighty nine, there's been no surplus in Japan. They've been running massive deficits. Yes. For thirty years, right? And their government, their debt to GDP. Ratio is two hundred and fifty percent. Yeah, versus Australia's forty percent. It's still things still roll on over there, and they're going okay. Yeah. They don't care, and guess what? The Bank of Japan buys all the debt. Yeah, all of it. Yeah. So the interest that we talk about, you know, yes, the interest is ballooning out for Japan and for everybody else, but it's being paid to the Bank of Japan. Yes. And then the Bank of Japan pays it back to the government as profit. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> Swings and roundabouts. <laughs> so uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia owns about $350 billion worth of Australia's debt mm. of $890 okay. billion. They could take some more, you reckon? Buy them more. Buy some more. Just keep buying it. <laughs> they won't do it, but, you know. 
Well, it's, you're making me feel like it's all a bit of a shell game here and I shouldn't get too excited about it, the budget either way. Well, uh, uh, nobody cares about deficits, let's face it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, think, the, I, I think the neoliberal mantra of, you know, uh, buzz, uh, governments need to balance, Must the, balance books the budget yeah. is over. Yeah, I think you're right. It's lost. It's finished. Yeah, yeah. I'm hard, to, hard to disagree. <laughs> was there anything in the budget that grabbed you? Like, one, one thing I sort of grabbed me was the p- forecasts, and okay, budget forecasts are sometimes useless, but... The the forecasts around energy prices I thought were quite extraordinary. So the budget says power bills will rise 20% in the second half of 2022. So we're in that now. That's now, yep. And then a further 30% in 23-24. So what a joke joke their their, um, climate change policy that promised uh, a cut in power bills of $275. Yeah. What a joke that was. Well, Chalmers says old Vlad Putin blew that out of the water when he blew up all the, you know, blew up the energy, global energy maps. So, yeah, there's some um, sympathy for him there. Well, but so, yeah, but put that, in, put that in your policy. Just say, look, we'll cut energy prices by 275% as long as Russia doesn't invade <laughs> Ukraine. It'll be fine. We'll but do I mean, that. So, so that adds higher energy costs, 0.75 percentage points to inflation this year. J- just looking this morning, coal's numbers are out. Coles September quarter numbers out. Food inflation at Coles running at 7.1% in the supermarket, 8.8% in the fresh food aisles. So, yeah, well, that's not because of Mr. That's not Putin. because of Putin. The, the, this, this idea that the RBA gets inflation under control quickly, I, I, I am not buying it. I am not buying it. Fair enough. Um, no, I think mean, I mean, rates, sure. rates are going up a lot higher. Um, and that's another challenge. But Geez, it's, it's, it's a bit, there's a bit going on at the moment, isn't no, there? No, my look, I, I think you're right about the, that it won't um, be got under control, uh, under control quickly, but uh, I don't think interest rates are going up a lot higher because oh. I don't think they need to. There's so much debt, they just don't need to go up that much to cause the same, have the same impact, we haven't, in my opinion. They've, 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 they've moved faster than they've basically moved in 40 years and there has been no impact. Yeah, but there's a lag. Come on. It takes when, ages. When's the lag start? We have variable Six mortgage months. rates here. Oh, I don't know. I think they're going high. It takes, it takes at least three months for the increase in rates to be passed on to people's repayments. Yeah. Um, so we're into that now. It is definitely starting to happen. Oh, look, I think it's going to – well, uh, you know. I think it's going to be uh, – I think yeah. there'll be two more rate hikes of 25 basis points, and that's it. That's it. Yeah. So done by the end of this year. Well, it could be. Two more rate hikes. All right. Well, because inflation's already I coming think, down. I think I might it? have a chance to win my 20 bucks I lost off you for Josh Frydenberg. I, I, there's definitely going to be more than two more rate hikes. Okay, right. We've got 20 bucks on it. Okay. Right. Excellent. Hey, can I just mention one more thing that happens this week? Speaking of interest and inflation, yes. the bank results start this week. There's probably lots of our listeners who are bank investors. ANZ Thursday, Macquarie Friday going to be very interesting to see how the bank's profit margins are going because they are doing the uh, interest rate two-step here where they pass the rates on to borrowers very quickly and they pass the rate increases on to savers much less quickly and their margins explode. 
Um, so that'll be interesting to watch. That's a big thing to have a look at over the next couple of the, days. Their share prices have been going up, haven't they? They've had a magical last three months. Yeah, that's, and that's because rates are going up and the investors understand. Have figured it out, yeah. Investors understand that this means their margins are going to expand. Uh, Westpac and ANZ are up 12 11% in three months against in a market down 5%. It's pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. So can they hold those gains? That'll be interesting to watch. Well, they're just going up because they're going to gouge us, aren't they? <laughs> they already are, in a way. And that'll be interesting to see whether that conversation changes a bit. Uh, everyone knows what's going on. Everyone knows that the gap's opened up. Yeah. Is there any political pressure to say, hang on, come on, help the poor savers of Australia out? No, well... Throw them a bone. The government's too scared to do that. I mean, April's coming, April comes out and says, oh, you know, we, we want the banks to be... Yeah, strong know, and stable. Unquestionably... Yeah, strong, unquestionably strong. There you are. Yeah. That's the- <laughs> Good point. Anyway, so, interesting to watch. Uh, so, we, well, shall we move to questions? Yeah, let's do some questions. We've got some good okay. ones today. Good, good questions today. Dawn says uh, she enjoys listening to the podcast while working on the farm. Good stuff, Dawn. Uh, do you know the process to change the redemption period of alternative asset funds? Is it entirely up to the manager or are there regulations, i.e. notice periods? I ask because with the lack of transparency around unlisted assets, many of which are in the alternative space, and with economic uncertainty here and globally, it's important to watch perhaps as a red red flag. Absolutely right, Dawn. Uh, you are spot on that this is an issue that needs to be focused on. I wrote about this on Sunday. Our super funds are full of unlisted assets. Some of them are 50% unlisted assets. Now that's worked really well over the last few years, but if there is some sort of liquidity issue where they need to sell these assets quickly, that's going to be hard. It is hard to sell a toll road or a uh, private equity investment or a office tower really quickly. So you need to be aware of that. Now, on the redemption period, it is up to the fund, and they'll set that out in the PDS, the Product Disclosure Statement, but they will have uh, conditions in there where they can change redemption periods or suspend redemptions altogether if they. Yeah, uh, I was going to say that, that is um, required, and that has happened before. Yeah, well, I was going to say that the redemption period only works as long as no, not too many people ask for their A money. Redeeming, back. yes. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you're right to think about it. Um, I mean, you know, we're probably a long way from redemption periods being changed, but if there is some sort of big liquidity issue and everyone stampedes for the exits, those funds will just say, they'll, they'll, they'll say, no, nah, we're limiting redemptions. So you worked on the Sabbath, did you? Of course, yes. <laughs> Money never sleeps. <laughs> Alex asks, I'm in my late 20s and have all my savings tied up in shares, 70% in Argo, uh, listed investment company, and 30% in the Vanguard hedged international ETF. Uh, Alex originally had 100% in Argo to best track the Australian market, but adjusted my portfolio to have 30% in the Vanguard vehicle to try and get exposure to the US and other markets. But with Argo, he's getting fully frank dividends, but uh, the... ETF, international ETFs dividends are not fully franked. My question, do you think over the long term I'll be better off having 100% in Aussie ETFs given dividends are fully franked? Uh, I don't think anyone should invest for a tax break. No. I think you should invest for what you, you know, for the returns you're going to get. And um, I think the diversity that you've achieved by putting 30% into an international 
uh, ETF is good. And I think, I mean, that's Stick with it. exactly right. Australia accounts for 3% of global capital markets. Why would you want all your eggs in 3% of the world's basket? Just because there's frank dividends. Yeah, just because there's know. frank dividends. Nah. Nah. I think, you, I think Alex has played this really well. And don't chop and change. You're 20. You've got time to yep. think about it long term. Stick with it. Yeah, okay, the international shares might be having a rough year, but so is everyone. Yeah, there's no, and there's nothing wrong with Argo, really. No, I, mean, no, okay. I think his plan's he's got fine. Yeah, yeah, he's fine. He might want, over time, he might actually want more diversification, not less. Yeah. I, w- I would suggest. You could have a look at some other ETFs that not just, don't just focus on international, but are focused on particular sectors yeah. or yep. whatever. and get geographies, some, yep. Yeah. Uh, Jack says... Uh, love the show. Thank you, Jack. Following Barefoot Advice, my super is in a low-fee index fund. In the last 12 months, its performance has been minus 10%. Ow! By far the worst performing product this year. Um, with a gloomy outlook for 2023, I'm considering switching to a managed product, but I'm concerned that it means locking in losses. Is switching investment products when performance is bad equivalent to selling shares after the market falls? Yes. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it is basically right. I mean... Uh, if you're going to switch, that requires the, the the investments that you own to be sold. Yep. And you will... So as long as you understand that. Yeah. You know, you're going to crystallise losses. That's correct. Yeah. But uh, again, like Jack, yeah, you've had a bad 12 months, but you're forgetting about the really good 24 months you had before that. Like the markets go up and they go down. Yeah. Don't Don't drop your bundle after one bad year. Exactly. If you, if you can't stand a 10% drawdown on the yeah. stock market, you shouldn't yep. be in it. Well, that's right. And, and, you, and Jack has chosen – he's put his super in a low-fee index fund rather than a super fund, which would probably have slightly different stance than an index fund. Yeah. Um, well, so. the other thing – the thing about super, big, uh, super in big industry funds uh, is that a lot of their assets, if not up to half their assets, are in unlisted assets. Yeah. So if you're in an, if you're in an index, low-fee index fund, you're in the stock market. Yeah. That's yep. it. Yeah. But the advantage of being in an industry fund or a, a big super fund is because you've got some infrastructure in there as well. And some fixed interest. And fixed interest and, and private, sort of stuff. private equity and yep. uh, alternative funds and so on. So – there is a case for that. I mean, yeah, but but think, but I think that's but all right. the funds, all funds went down in the yeah. past twelve months, and they're still Most going. I mean, the latest numbers, the latest balanced fund year to September is down five percent. So, Jack, you're not out of kilter with the rest of the world, but I think the bit you're right, Alan. The better question is, do you want total exposure to just the share market, presumably the Australian share market, or do you want something that's got a few different yeah things in it? So you pay a bit more for the super fund. Yep. Uh, fee, but you do get something for you that. You get a different balance. You get a different set of investments. Your turn. My turn. Andrew, he's an avid weekly listener. Thank you, Andrew. I wanted to continue on the thought that Jeremiah raised last week. His question was a good one around inflation and rate rises, pushing people to the financial brink. Is there the possibility, through crazy global circumstances, that inflation becomes delinked to interest rate increases and then inflation continues to stay high regardless of interest rates? Has this ever happened? And do central banks just continue to chase the runaway train? Uh, well, they have in the past, that's for sure. I mean, I've just been uh, reading about the 70s. I was kind of – I was there, but I was <laughs> – I was drunk at the time, <laughs> if not stoned. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> but but the uh, but the first oil shock occurred in uh, 1973 after the Yom Kippur War, mm. and um, it wasn't until 1979 that they started really chasing higher inflation. Right. Yeah. So inflation went up a yep, lot. A lot after 1973, but for a, at first the Fed just sort of didn't want to deal with it. Hope for really. the best. Hope for the best. Thought it would come down. So since Paul Volcker took interest rates up to whatever twenty percent or something and caused the massive recession of um, nineteen eighty two, mm. with uh, those high rates and that were peaked in nineteen eighty one, um, the central banks, you know, basically, uh, and in particular the, the the current chairman of the Fed, Joel uh, J. Powell, Joel, uh, Jerome Powell says that um, it seems to be channeling Paul Volcker now. Mm. I mean, they have gone for a while by saying uh, uh, saying you know, they're, they're happy to have inflation or they're trying to get inflation up rather than down, but now it's all about getting inflation down and they will continue to chase it, I think. Yeah, but, but uh, Andrew raises a good point and I, I think this is what I was perhaps trying to say more elegantly, Andrew said it more elegantly than me, that the, the issue that we have is that... Breaking inflation back in the 70s took a decade. It was a decade until inflation came back into the target. And it took a big recession and rates at 20% to get there. Now, we're, we're sort of hoping that inflation is going to come down from, you know, close to 9% after a couple of rate rises and everything's going to go back to normal and we'll be back on the sort of the big train of expansion. I mean, yeah. th- th- this, is what, this is what doesn't make sense to me. We've got, and we're going to have continued inflationary pressures from energy, wages because the population's ageing. I-, I just don't get how the inflationary impulses are sort of knocked on the head by, you know, four or five rate hikes. Yeah, well, we've got 20 bucks on it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Your turn with Marshall. You spoke last week about bonds, bond ETFs and bank hybrids. Can you please give me an advanced, an example of a bank hybrid? Have you got one? Uh, yes. Go um, on. uh, Go. CBA Pearls. I was looking this P-E-R, up. That's P-E-R-L-S. Yes, and the code is C-B-A-P-K. Right. Um, so if, if Marshall looks that up, he'll be able to see a bank, a bank hybrid in action. Uh, and also, Marshall, go onto the CBA website and look up the the PDS or the product disclosure statement yep. of the pearls, uh, and you'll basically you'll find you'll, you'll read exactly what the deal is with yeah. them, because they the whole thing about a bank hybrid is they they start off as a, a floating rate fixed interest security, yes. basically paying you interest that floats according to the um, the, the RBA cash rate effectively. Um, and then eventually they convert into shares. Yeah. So they're a kind of hybrid between fixed interest and equity. Yeah, so they're not like an ETF or not like a term deposit. They're, they are a financial instrument that brings a different set of risks. And you can buy them on the stock exchange. Yep. Uh, but it's not an ETF. No, it's not or, – or a share. You, you'll need to l- use that code and, and all the banks have got them. Uh, you can find the codes and that's where you start to purchase them. Secondly, he says, how does a bond ETF work? Does it follow the same rules as a bond, i.e. if it's a five-year bond, even if the price goes down, you still get 100% of your money back on expiry? Well, the ETF gets its money back. Yes. Um, these ETFs tend to be ongoing, don't they? They they're not, do, they're not yeah. fixed. They're yeah. not fixed terms, right? So the, a bond ETF will just uh, buy, uh, as bonds mature, they buy more. Yes, the, the bond ETF tracks a basket of bonds. So there's a – Vanguard has an Australian government 
bond ETF, which tracks the progress of Australian bonds. And as the coupons are paid back to the ETF, the price of the ETF will be adjusted. But there's no there's, there's no end point like an actual bond. You just stay in. Yeah, it, it's a it, it's a synthetic way of getting exposure to the bond market rather than a bond. Yeah. Um, but the thing here, Marshall, is that the bond, a bond does have maturity date. If it's a five-year bond, you get your money back in five years, but yes. that doesn't happen with an ETF. Yeah, your exposure continues. You get your money back if you sell it. Yeah, that's right. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thirdly, regarding ETFs, can they have a tendency to hold up a company, even if it's doing poorly, because every time a person buys the share in an ETF? Well, yeah, that, that is the case. Big companies do tend to get supported uh, by uh, money flowing into ETFs. Yes. He looks a bit reluctant. There's a whole lot of money flowing into ETFs. Come on. And all the money going into ETFs tends to find its way into CSL, CBA, BHP, right? Yeah, I think it works itself out, though, over time. Like, you know, the ETFs tend to be have different weightings in different companies and they I, – I, I, I don't – I'm not sure how much you could sort of isolate the holding up uh, part of it. I, I think they generally reflect where they're – where the ETF, where, where the underlying shares going. I think they've shown to be pretty good at that over time. Okay. Tom, my question is regarding help debt repayments, and I'm not sure the best way to word this. When working out how much help debt you have to repay and if it should be paid off in the middle of the financial year, does a CPI interest rate increase need to be taken into account for the final amount due? I hope you know about this. Oh, no, I'm not sure. Um, I would have thought there'd be a moment in time when the CPI is applied, probably at the yeah. end of the financial year when your tax is done. Um, so I think help debt repayments are quite complicated. Yeah. It's a, it's a complicated area, Tom. We're not experts. Um, it probably – there is actually a fair bit online. Yeah. The, in the ATO, if you go into the – if you Google it or go to the ATO website, you'll find a fair bit of – uh, guidance and, and again, uh, uh, you know, having recently done my tax, there there are chat. There's a chat line on the ATO website where you can ask questions. There so you are. it's it's worth you know maybe they'll say oh we can't give you general advice but here's how the calculation how the timing of the calculation works. That'd there be, you go, Tom. That'd be my advice. Ask them, not us. Yeah, sorry, Tom. Da- uh, but time. one thing on help, one thing on help. I know we've said this before, but the best thing to do is not pay it off. Just let it come out of your yeah out of your income over time like it's, because you need to earn. It only happens once you start earning forty seven thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah, so yeah. I, I mean, sure. Hopefully, you, you know, if you've been properly educated, you'll quickly make a salary of forty seven thousand. But still, yeah, um, yeah. I agree with. I absolutely agree with you, James. Just, Don't pay it off. Just just let it expire over time. My my wife's still got a bit of a. Help debt, hex debt, whatever it is. Like, it's why'd they change the name anyway? Hex know. was I fine. I think it's slightly. Um, there are two programs. Are there that, that do different, slightly different things? Oh God! <laughs> Your turn, Daniel. I like many others saw the U.S. inflation data at eight point two percent last month and was aghast. 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 Like good word. Good word. word that <laughs> <laughs> feeling a little better about Australia's seemingly much lower rate. However. Upon looking deeper into the headline rate down to the monthly contribution, you'll see that monthly, US monthly inflation has been really quite low in the past three months, averaging just 0.17 or and 0.07 per month percent respectively, or annualised 2.06. I hope my maths is correct on that. 
I'm not going to check it, Daniel. I have checked it. <laughs> Those numbers are wrong. <laughs> you have not checked it. I have. Have you? Right. I have. Okay. What are I, the right numbers? I can't remember. But, oh. that's, but it's not there. No, no. Oh. It, it was. It, look, it's true that if you look at the monthly inflation numbers, it is an 8.2%. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. The 8.2% refers to um, September to September. Yes. Right? Year and, on year. And the CPI both here and in the US, last September was very low. Yes. Was kind of unusually low. So therefore the, you know, the year-on-year number is quite high. But if you look at the monthly inflation rates now, they're not that high. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. And so uh, Daniel says, what am I seeing here? Is the scourge of inflation over? Will the Fed stop raising rates? Um, Well, look, I think that, I mean... I don't agree with James here. I think the scourge of inflation is uh, close to being over. Wow. I think that inflation will fall next year. And uh, there are already signs of it falling. Yes. I the, think in fact, commodity prices, the energy prices have come down a huge amount. I think the problem for the Fed is that core inflation is still rising and will keep rising till the end of the year. That is sticky stuff that people people's lives depend on, like rent. Shelter, that stuff is going to continue to push higher. Might be falling sometime next year, which is good. But at the moment, the Fed is looking at that inflation rate. It's going up. No one is stopping spending. And they are thinking, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Last question. Love the show. This is from Lindsay. Love the show. Even listened while he was in Europe last month. Jeez. That's pretty sad, Lindsay. Come on. (laughs) That's good. We appreciate it, Lindsay. (laughs) Maybe a long drive along the Amalfi Coast or something. Is the Talga Tia... Listening to us on the Amalfi Coast. (laughs) That's a a a beautiful thought, isn't it? Yeah. Is the Talga TLG SPP, that's a share purchase plan, worth it? Shares are at $1.20 today and they offer $909 for $1,000. Or one dollar ten each, up to twenty seven thousand two hundred and seventy three shares for thirty grand. TLG say says they want to raise ten million. Interested in your learned opinions? Well, uh, uh, well, the number one thing, Lindsay, is do you want any, do you want to own any more shares in this business or not? Exactly. If you do want to own more shares in it, uh, this is the way to do it because, as you point out, there is a bit of a discount. Um, so you do that rather than buy on the market, but only do it if you want more shares in it. Exactly. And Telga isn't – I just interviewed them a couple of weeks ago, the CEO, whose name now escapes me. Um, but anyway, uh, they've got a graphite mine in Sweden mm-hmm. and they're going to make uh, anodes. Yes, battery anode, yep. Battery anodes out of graphite. Hmm. And by far the, by far the largest – uh, material in lithium batteries is graphite. Yes. So they should be called graphite batteries. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I stand by my point that that's not as sexy as lithium batteries. No, graphite's in pencils. In pencils, exactly. <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, apparently you need it. And they've done an off-take, they've just announced, which is why I did the interview, they've just announced an off-take agreement with a company called Automotive Sales uh, SE. Yeah. Uh, which owns, which is owned by Mercedes-Benz and someone else, and owns Alfa Romeo, uh, Peugeot, uh, Chrysler, Fiat. Mm. Uh, who knew? Yeah, I, I didn't know some bloody company that had a, a non-event name owned <laughs> all those car companies. Well, and all of those car companies need to start making electric vehicles. They Pronto. do, and they are. Mm. They all are, and they need anodes. Yeah. So Telga's right there, and um, 
There you go. Yeah. Perhaps. Run from Perth. Yeah. With the Swedish graphite so, mine. So it's a bit like that question of fr- franking credits. You know, don't make an investment decision on the base of, basis of tax. Don't make an investment decision on the basis of the stock. You can get the stock a bit cheaper. You want it's 50% cheaper. Yeah. You, well, even then, you want to believe in the company's prospects. But perhaps, just thinking about Lindsay, perhaps he could go and visit the graphite mine in Sweden on his next European sojourn. While he's listening to us. While he's listening to us, he could play them a tape at the sure. lunchroom. I think that's an excellent idea, Lindsay. Go and check out their it's, – it's, uh, you'd want to go in summer because it's in northern Sweden. Oof. So you'd, right. be, yep. you'd be waist deep in snow. <laughs> <laughs> if you, it's cold. That's an experience, yeah. Yeah. And dark. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so we've got your, we've your future sorted out, Lindsay. <laughs> Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe. It's been great. Stephen Mayne will be back next week. Send in your questions to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Till then, I'm, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, and I'm probably Alan Kohler after that time as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm James Thompson, constantly uh, the Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. 